Familial dysautonomia was, until very recently, considered a fatal disease. New research has shown that it is now treatable. What do we know about familial dysautonomia, and how can we best help our patients? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD Radio on XM160. I'm your host, Dr. Bruce Bloom, and joining me to discuss familial dysautonomia and its current treatments is Dr. Barish Rubin, professor in the Department of Biological Sciences and head of the Laboratory for Familial Dysautonomia Research at Fordham University. Dr. Rubin, welcome to ReachMD. Thank you, Bruce. Thank you for giving me the opportunity. So first, tell us a little bit about familial dysautonomia. What is it? Has it been known by any other names? And, and why would we know it by a, another name? Well, it was originally discovered by two scientists named Riley and Day. So it was originally referred to as Riley-Day syndrome. It is a disorder that affects the neurological system and causes a variety of neurological dysfunctions mostly associated with the autonomic nervous system, hence the term dysautonomia. And tell us a little bit about those details. What happens to these kids when they have this disease? There are difficulties that they face because of problems that they have with the autonomic nervous system, which are due to a reduced development of their sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous systems. They have problems regulating things that are commonly regulated without any thought in individuals like you and me. They have very labile blood pressure and heart rates. They have dysfunction with regards to their gastric system, such as dysmotility. In addition to that, they have an insensitivity to pain, both in terms of heat and broken bones. These are things that they will not sense, and hence that in itself has its own medical complications associated with it. And how is familial dysautonomia usually diagnosed? In the uh, past, it was diagnosed by a variety of symptoms. A response on a histamine test would be characterized. These individuals have a reduced production of tears. They usually show a failure to thrive. And so if a physician has a child that's brought into their office that is Ashkenazi Jewish descent who is showing muscle weakness, lack of tears, it is a reasonable thing to expect or to test for the possibility that they have familial dysautonomia. In fact, very recently we had a child that was a year old who went undiagnosed seen by a pediatrician numerous times, and they realized there was something wrong with this child but didn't know what it was. The child went to an ophthalmologist for dry eyes, and the physician said, well, perhaps this child has familial dysautonomia, and in fact, the child does. And is there now a genetic test for familial dysautonomia for either the child or for the parents? Right. So this is the breakthrough that we had in 2000. We published it in the beginning of 2001, where we identified the genetic cause for this recessive disorder. And now, the, in the, while in the past, people determined whether or not somebody had familial dysautonomia based on symptoms, now there's a very simple genetic test that can be performed, which gives a definitive diagnosis. How prevalent is familial dysautonomia? How many kids have this disease? There are uh, probably in the neighborhood of 500 children in the world that have familial dysautonomia. It is almost primarily present in the Ashkenazic Jewish population, though we have had instances where we have studied individuals outside of that population 
who have unique mutations, but it's primarily Ashkenazic Jewish. Carrier frequency has been estimated to be about 1 in 27 for the major mutation that causes familial dysautonomia, which translates into something of the order of 1 in 3,600 births with the potential for familial dysautonomia. And is it our understanding that when an embryo develops that has both of these recessive genes, do they sometimes fail to thrive and and not get born at all? That's a very good and very interesting question. It is interesting to note that there are individuals who are determined because they eventually have a child that has familial dysautonomia, and when they look back at their pregnancy history, they do have miscarriages, and there was no determination as to why those miscarriages occurred. We do believe that some of these fetuses are spontaneously aborted because of the deficits that these fetuses carry. So now let's go back and talk about some of the symptoms that these kids get when they arrive in the world with familial dysautonomia. Could you notice it almost right away with a newborn? Usually it's pretty apparent with a newborn. The first symptom that's usually noted is difficulty in terms of sucking. They have difficulty, as I mentioned before, with their gastromotility and their entire gastric system starting with their mouth. And they usually have significant difficulty in terms of feeding off a bottle or breastfeeding. And that's usually one of the first signs that are noted. After that, there are other things that will eventually become apparent, such as the inability to produce tears, which becomes very noticeable when a child is crying, as young infants will do, and there are no tears that will accompany those crying episodes. So that would be one of the other signs that one would know that there was something wrong with this child. And then there's just a general muscle weakness that is very common to these children. So, But the first thing one would see is an inability to suck, and that would be something that if a physician noted, it would make sense to consider the possibility that this child has familial dysautonomia. And prior to the last five or six years, what was the standard of care for treatment for these children that had familial dysautonomia? Familial dysautonomia, because it is accompanied by so many different symptoms, physicians would treat the symptoms. So if a child was suffering from low blood pressure, they would give the child something to raise the blood pressure. If the child had high blood pressure, they would give them something to lower the blood pressure. If they had dysmotility, gastric dysmotility, they would give them something to speed up the motility. If they were having vomiting episodes, they would give them something, an antiemetic to control the vomiting. But basically, all of the treatments addressed each of the individual symptoms that were present in that individual. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I am your host, Dr. Bruce Bloom, and with us is Dr. Barish Rubin, professor in the Department of Biological Sciences and head of the Laboratory for Familial Dysautonomia at Fordham University. We're discussing familial dysautonomia and its current treatments. And let's now shift and talk about the new treatments and you and Dr. Sylvia Anderson and your part in discovering those. So take us back to how you first got involved in working on familial dysautonomia. That is a, a personal story. I have a very dear friend who had, who has actually a nephew with familial dysautonomia. And this child has had, continues to have a very difficult life. 
many respiratory issues, scoliosis, a, a variety of symptoms that are associated with FD. And there was no genetic test for familial dysautonomia, so two of this individual's siblings got married to people of Ashkenazic Jewish descent, and each of them, as luck would have it, married somebody who was apparently a carrier because they each had a child with familial dysautonomia. So now there was a child of a couple and now grandchildren of a couple that had familial dysautonomia. And because of my relationship with my friend, I was able to see how this was tearing these families apart and creating such problems. And there was terror for these individuals' as siblings to get married because they didn't know what their risk were of having a child with familial dysautonomia. And so we said to ourselves in the lab, Sylvia and I said, you know, we've got to try to do something for these individuals, and that's how we began this project. So then take us through from never having worked on this particular disease to suddenly locating the gene. What was the process? I've been working with Dr. Anderson for about 20 years, and we have a very, very have and had a very active molecular biology laboratory. We use techniques that are commonly used in the study of genetics, but in fact, at that time, we were studying immune modulators, such as the interferons and other cytokines, which had intrigued us for a very long period of time. So the abilities to do this were in the lab, but we just were not focused on that area of research. In the summer of 2000, because of a variety of different issues that came together, I said to Dr. Anderson, well, why don't we try to spend the summer trying to find the genetic cause of familial dysautonomia. The Human Genomic Project was beginning to roll out its data, and Sylvia and myself and a few graduate students went to work on it. And it didn't take us three months to find the genetic cause of familial dysautonomia. I have a group of people who work extremely hard. They were extremely dedicated, and they knew the importance of what it was that they were doing and went at it with great fervor. Well, I mean, it's just amazing that you could do something like that in 90 days when people spend their whole careers missing out on that. So, I mean, I just think that's a great achievement. Tell us then, what did you find? Where is this gene and what does it do? So the gene is actually called ICAP or IKB-CAP. And the name that it was given is actually an incorrect name. It was based on an incorrect observation about the function of this protein. Interestingly enough, the name has stuck. What this protein actually does with regards to the nervous system and why a deficit in this mutation causes familial dysautonomia is still unclear. But there are actually two different mutations that can cause familial dysautonomia. One is the one that's most common. It is called the major mutation, and the one that is less common is known as the minor mutation. And what happens when these kids have this mutation in the gene? What does it do physiologically, anatomically that causes the disease? So the the major mutation, which is the one that we focus on and continue to focus on now, is a mutation which occurs not in the coding region of the gene, but in the intronic sequence of the gene, where this mutation results in a skipping of exonic sequence from the final messenger RNA that's being made. So it is what we call a splicing mutation, a mutation which affects splicing. And what it does is it causes for the skipping of exon 20 of the ICAP gene. So when you skip exon 20, the protein that's generated is non-functional and thereby causes the effects that occur in an individual with familial dysautonomia. Now, 
you discovered as you continue to do work that these kids actually do make some functional protein. How does that occur? Yeah, so this is, uh, thank you, that's a great question and I really appreciate it because it's giving me the opportunity to tell you some really fascinating information that has so intrigued me over a period of time. So let me just take you back a little bit in terms of my thought processes on this. There is a mutation in the Ashkenazic Jewish community which causes Fanconi anemia. Fanconi anemia is a very devastating genetic disorder which causes, in addition to anemia, causes a variety of other symptoms, including short limbs, absence of limbs. Individuals of the Ashkenazic Jewish community who have this mutation are very, very, very sick individuals. And interestingly enough, there was a publication that came out describing in the Japanese population the existence of the exact same mutation. And in the Japanese population, this mutation causes very, very mild symptoms. And the individuals basically go undiagnosed sometimes until they're 30 or 40 years old. And they're diagnosed for mild anemia. And we said to ourselves, this is so odd to have such a different phenotype associated with what turns out to be an identical mutation. Now, one could argue that the genetic background in an individual of Japanese descent is different than that of the individual who is of Ashkenazi Jewish descent, and we thought of that as a possibility. But the other thing that struck us was the reality that the diet that is eaten by people of Ashkenazi Jewish descent would be very different than the diet that was consumed by somebody who was of Japanese descent. And that suggested to us that there was a possibility that we might be able to manipulate or alter gene expression in individuals through foods or food supplements. So then what's the impact of that diet on these patients? So having made the connection or having believed that there was a connection between food and possible expression of genes, we went out and purchased all kinds of foods and supplements and vitamins and took them into the lab and set up a test which would enable us to quantify the amount of functional ICAP that was produced in cells derived from individuals with familial dysautonomia and to examine what the effect of these compounds is on the expression of both the functional and non-functional protein products that are produced by this gene. I'd like to thank my guest, Dr. Barish Rubin, professor in the Department of Biological Sciences and head of the Laboratory for Familial Dysautonomia Research at Fordham University. I'm your host, Dr. Bruce Bloom, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Please visit our website at reachmd.com, which features our entire interview library available through on-demand podcasts. Or call us toll-free with your comments and suggestions at 888-639-6157. That's 888-639-6157. And thank you for listening.